How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Baella. Hello there, my chickens and dishes. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, just in case, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if we've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese. So if you don't understand something, just Google it. My guest today is a chef, author, TV host, and storyteller. Between 2013 and 2018, she hosted the PBS television series, A Chef's Life, where she was a star and narrator. Each episode seeks out an ingredient and tells the story of the people who grow and produce it. She's the author of two cookbooks, Deep Run Roots, Stories and Recipes from My Corner of the South, and her second book just came out on October 20th, This Will Make It Taste Good, A New Path to Simple Cooking. She also has three restaurants, Chef and the Farmer, Handy and Hot, and Ben is Big Time. In 2014, she was the first woman since Julia Child to win the Peabody Award for a cooking program. Vivian Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Perfect. Two important questions before we start this. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have. I have. Thank you. How was it? Just tell everybody how awesome it is. It was amazing. No, it was amazing. It was actually the last trip I went on before all of this. Okay, perfect. Do you know any Portuguese words? You know, (laughs) I'm going to say no. It's okay. okay. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how life is in a small town, like on a Saturday afternoon in Deep Run, North Carolina. What happens there? Uh, Not a whole lot. Uh, (laughs) We spend a lot of time in the yard. Um, we play catch and I do a lot of weed pulling that's happens in small communities a lot. I think, um, my parents come over, they live across the road from me. I think that's a very kind of classic small town thing. So you never run out of sugar. I never run out of free advice. (laughs) (laughs) 
your parents were farmers. Uh, they raised hogs, grew tobacco, caught, among other things. Do you farm yourself anything? And if so, what? No, you know, I, um, growing up, I always said that I would never want to marry a farmer. Uh, <laughs> because I saw like how hard it was and how, you know, you were just at the mercy of so many variables you had no control over. And so I was like, I don't want any part of that, but I, I love gardening and, you know, I have, I love, I have a, an affinity for potted plants. I have like 30 orchids in my house that I've saved from all over the, every office building I go into. So Growing up, looking at your parents as, as farmers, did that teach you anything about being a restaurant owner in, or chef or a food in general? Absolutely. I mean, I think anytime you like farm the land, food is really important to you. And so, you know, all of our gatherings were about food. And so I think that made me, you know, really appreciate and, and value food, which is probably why I became a chef and then chose to write about food. But... I, the other thing that I've realized is that, um, uh, being a chef is kind of like being a farmer. Like I, I would never wish one of my children find a partner in a chef either. <laughs> what is American Southern food and in which way do you think has similarities, for instance, with European food or specific European country? Oh, I mean, I think there's so many connections to to European food in the South. You know, one of my favorite like moments on a chef's life is when I go and I make collard kraut with my neighbors. And, you know, that for me is just like a an extension into history because, you know, basically these family probably comes to North Carolina from somewhere in Eastern Europe and they want to make the kraut that they've always made, but they don't find the, the type of cabbage. So they find a, an ingredient that's really prolific, which is collards and they make collard kraut. So, I mean, that is like, you know, you can point the finger over to Eastern Europe there. Same thing um, with, you know, a sausage that's prevalent or was prevalent in my, my community called Tom Thumb. And it's stuffed into a, a pig's appendix and hung to cure. And I think that is really similar to Codacchino, uh, which is an Italian sausage, which is very much the same. And they're both celebration sausages that you would eat um, on a specific holiday, generally New Year's. And I actually, Portugal, I was saving that for you. Um, in Portugal, you know, I remember uh, going into bakeries and seeing this, we were there at Thanksgiving and seeing this thing that looked just like our Southern fruit cake. And, you know, it was a cake that had like nuts and, and candy jellied kind of fruit on top. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, like, Oh my God, it was round. It was round. It was round. Yes. We call it bullhay, which is King's cake. That just reminded me so much of, you know, that connection is very clear as well. Yeah. I could go on about... Um... <laughs> you, can't, you don't have to stop. One of the things for me, Southern, so I've been living in the U.S. for 10 years and I live in D.C., which is a little different, of course, to food. There's a more blend of a lot of different things. But one of the associations I always make about Southern food in Portugal, because a lot of my friends, as bad Europeans, they think American food, it's nothing. And I'm, I started like that way. And when you start to understand better the history and the culture, it's not that way. I found one of the links between Southern foods and Portugal 
is I always associate Southern food of being everybody around the table with a nice, you know, not it has to be a pot roast, but two or three things that, or you slow cook. Or it's, a, it's a very family gathering environment. Maybe a lot of good cultures are like that, but, you know, we have a lot of tradition when it comes to meat and things like that, meat and sausages, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that, although I haven't been to the, I mean, I've been here and there, but not as much. Uh, I believe that that's a strong connection between Southern food in the U.S. and Portugal. I think there's that, for me, when I associate Southern food, I associate the whole family together. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Just yes. two or three pots together and everybody just eats from the same pot. Yeah, I do. I do. That's my, that's my reference of Southern foods. Why do you think Americans or people in general are so fascinated by Southern food? Well, I think it's our, our nation's indigenous food. You know, it's kind of, if you trace it back, it's kind of where it all started for the, the United States. And I think there, there was a blend of cultures, you know, given, you know, enslaved Africans and all the European influence and they, you know, they came together um, to create something that, you know, was distinct. And so that's, that's what we all have a connection to, you know? Um, I think that's why Southern food is so always, we always harken back to it because it was first and there's so many stories associated with it. And we're storytellers here in the South. What is the biggest evolution of Southern food in the last 20 years? Well, I think the rediscovery of it, if you will, you know, I think, you know, for a long time, the perception was like Southern food was all like fried chicken and biscuits and just, you know, associated with being very heavy. But I think, you know, the, the kind of like restaurant chef revolution, if you will, has really highlighted that Southern food was typically uh, much like uh, rural Portuguese food, very rooted in um, root vegetables and grains and, and using meat as celebration and lots of vegetables and not necessarily heavy and unhealthy. In the past, you've said that people romanticize small farms and farmers and villainize corporate farming. You've also said this mirrors a large problem in the United States, which is a divide between urban and rural people. So what can we do to help bridge that divide? Um, I think, you know, educate yourself, like read, you know, don't just listen to one, one viewpoint on a subject that's as important as our food source and the people who grow it. Um, You know, in many cases, like large corporate farms are made up by small family farms and it's not as black and white and, um, you know, wrong or right as we'd like to think it is. And, you know, I think there's ways that, you know, big farmers and small farmers do it right and do it wrong. And I think, you know, if we're going to weigh in on a subject, we just really need to understand it. And being in the the situation that I am, you know, growing up in a farming family, but then running a farm to table restaurant where I work with both like really small farmers um, who have like 15 pigs on the ground and, and, you know, growing up in a family with a pretty large farm, like I see the reasons and the ways that both models work and don't work. And so I just want people to understand that. What has your experience with the restaurant business and farming led you to believe that about the farm-to-table movement? Is it truly possible or not? 
Um, I mean, I think the farm to table movement is something that appeals to just a certain demographic right now. Uh, I think that one of the things that we're learning and certainly that was highlighted for me during COVID was that it's not only important to like have a connection to your food source because it's romantic and trendy, it's important to have a connection to your food source so you can freaking feed yourself <laughs> when, when, you know, everything's not at your fingertips. So I think that we, that's something that, that's the next step of the farm to table movement for all of us to understand really what's available uh, locally more, not because it's trendy, but because do think, it's important. Do you think that will be possible? People who have that understanding or it will take a while? Um, I think it'll take a while, you know, nothing happens overnight. And, you know, often like movements like that do start at, you know, this romantic, trendy, elite place. And it, it trickles, you know, the same thing happened with McDonald's, you know, it was the, the hot place to go yeah. when I was a kid. That's where everybody wanted to have their birthday parties. And, you know, my birthday parties there. Yes. <laughs> right. That doesn't, you know, that's not like the, that's not enviable anymore, really. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> How important do you think it is for us chefs or non-chefs to know and understand the history of an ingredient or a dish? You know, I think we, it's very important for us to, for everybody to understand first where their food comes from and, and why we eat what we eat because the planet is in jeopardy. Our food source is in jeopardy. Clearly, we have not learned a history in this country that is true. And so, you know, I think, again, the more we know, the better we can do um, yep. on the other side. So you have a new, well, technically, the book comes out tomorrow. The interview for then people to listen will be, you know, a few weeks from now. But this will make it taste good. What was the idea behind the book? Um, well, after I uh, published my first book, I woke up every morning for a year and read the new Amazon reviews on the book. And like one of the trends that I saw was like people wanted the book and the recipes to be more simple. And so I was like, I'm okay, I'm going to write a simple cookbook. Were you like screaming every morning, reading those? Yeah, reviews? I'm like, they are simple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just look at the pictures then. I don't exactly. know. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, if it kills me, I'm going to write a simple cookbook. And so I started doing that and I was just so bored. I mean, the recipes were fine, but I didn't, there was none of me in them. And at the, the last chapter in that book was called, this will make it taste good. And it was a chapter full of recipes of like condiments and little things that I make that I use as ingredients in my cooking to make really simple food exciting. And so I was like, you know, to hell with this, I'm going to write the book that I want to write. And I turned it on its head. And so now the whole book's called This Will Make It Taste Good. And every chapter is about one of those flavor heroes, those condiments that I call on. So now you're just going to start screaming from your window, right? Are you happy now? Everybody's happy now, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's simple. <laughs> exactly. So let's play a very quick game, Vivian. So imagine you go to a desert island if you want to go. You can be the mountains, but let's just do a desert island. You can only take one protein, one vegetable, one fruit, and one dessert. What are your choices? Let's start with your protein. Oh. How you cook it, and that's a different story. So Daddy, don't worry about that part. Okay, but if so, if I'm on an island, I'm assuming that I'm probably going to be able to figure out how to catch some fish. True. Okay, so I'm going to go with a pig. 
Okay, a pig. Pork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. I was trying to imagine the pig on the island, yes. Uh, one vegetable. One vegetable. Uh, cabbage. One fruit. Mine has some mango Water- trees, but... <laughs> Watermelon. Watermelon, okay, and one dessert. Mm. That's hard. I got serious. <laughs> I'm going to say ice cream, assuming I could also bring something to keep it frozen. Yeah, you figure out then the logistics okay. spots. Okay. In, yes. <laughs> Shifting the conversation a little bit, what was your first memory of taste? I would say my mom's chicken and rice, which I'm sure you have the same, very, very similar dish in Portugal where you like boil a chicken, it kind of falls apart, then you cook rice in that broth and it's just very homey and soupy and were your parents good good cooks um well my dad has never cooked anything <laughs> that pause probably <laughs> <laughs> yes. but my mom yes she's she's a good cook but not a cook that enjoys cooking my mom she's a bad cook and she does not enjoy cooking so <laughs> growing up was, was suffering most underrated ingredient for you cabbage you did say cabbage before, yes. Uh, <laughs> overrated ingredient for you. Overrated. Um, shrimp. Except Bre- so from Portugal, of uh, course. Thank you, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Best breakfast you can have. Mm. A air-dried sausage biscuit with grape jam and mustard. Do you like biscuits and gravy? You know, I like biscuits that have like a little something sweet and a little something salty. And biscuits and gravy is just a little bit too one note for me. Okay. But I'm, I'm an outlier there, I know. The strangest combination food-wise, some people might do it when they put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept. Um, you know, I don't like fish and cheese together. So like pasta dishes with fish and people put cheese, you know, it's a no for you? No. Okay. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? They're both good, right? <laughs> yes. There's no wrong answer here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think turning chickens. Other Portuguese quote is to sell your fish. So at the end of the podcast, when I ask my guests to sell their fish, that means to talk about yourself. So, you know, what's in the future for you? Well, the book is just coming out now. Uh, what's in the future for you, you know, where people can find you? Just sell your fish, Vivian. Well, yes, my book is coming out. I'm like so proud of it. Writing it was the most um, joyful, creative endeavor of my life so far. Um And after that, I'm getting ready to reopen our restaurant, Chef and the Farmer. And, you know, this has been a little bit of a, you know, I've been looking for the silver linings. That's one of our sayings here uh, (laughs) for the silver linings in all of this. And one of them is that it's allowed me to kind of reshape what I do at that restaurant. So that's in the short term. And then I'm pursuing some television projects but I don't know if anything will take. So we'll see. Okay. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So Vivian, thank you very much. For people listening, do not dare to write a bad review about the book because otherwise Vivian, she'll get to your house. She'll start I'm yelling. reading. I'm watching. Yeah, she's <laughs> literally reading every single uh, comment. Uh, thank you very much. Best of uh, success for the book and for the thank reopening you. of the restaurant. And, you know, if I ever go to North Carolina, to deep run North Carolina, which the not so sure if it's very likely, but you never know. You never know. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Thank you, Vivian, very much.
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> you too. Did you like that episode? Raise your hands. Me too. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I'm so grateful for all the messages and comments that you have left. And if you haven't done that, don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast, share, tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, and you can also send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget I release an episode every Tuesday and Friday of each week, so stay tuned all the time. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have an amazing day. Adios.